Welcome back to Not A Dollar More. My name is Shane Rogers. This is Australia's first podcast series dedicated to helping people who are wanting to stop or control their gambling, or for people who just want to know more about the potential harmful effects of gambling. I've experienced a gambling addiction myself, so I know all about it. This is possibly one of the most important episodes, because for most people out there struggling with their gambling, they want to know how to stop. So in the next two episodes, we'll take a look at all the different types of help, In this episode, we'll focus on professional help, and in the next episode, we'll talk about how to make changes on your own. Different types of help work for different people, so we think it's important to know about them all. Our first interview is with Ben, who for many years of gambling on the horses, found counselling was the most effective way to help him stop and move on. Welcome, Ben. Can you share a little of your story and how your gambling got started? Look, I've been gambling uh, for the best part now of about, or was gambling for about 28 years before I actually got help. I actually started off uh, when I was in high school and started betting on horses and it just started off as a small amount and, and as a bit of fun. Towards the end, it uh, certainly wasn't fun. One of the things that uh, led to it not becoming fun was that my mum uh, passed away and I inherited a large sum of money and that then allowed me access to betting and it got to the stage where um, I was betting I was probably turning over a couple of thousand dollars a day. I was betting from the time that I woke up in the morning up until the time that I went to bed. My whole life was just consumed about thinking about betting when I would be betting next. Things got really bad then when it started affecting me physically and mentally. And yeah, that's when things really got out of control. So was there a bit of a, a tipping point for you? Yeah, look, the tipping point for me was after I'd spent all of my side of the inheritance and I'd spent a large proportion of my sisters. Uh, I was entrusted to look after that money. And I found that I was struggling to sleep. Um, I was waking up at night and I was I was sweating. I was finding it difficult to engage with my family. I was you know, you know having to hide. I was having to tell a lot of lies. And I was really worried about the slippery slope that I was on. And I didn't want to really go any further than what I was and and I wasn't healthy and I just yeah just needed to stop it's so stressful isn't it very very stressful lying takes so much energy and you've got to think about the lies that you've told in the past and make sure the story still fits together yeah my life was just a big lie for for many many years so let's get to the getting help how long's it been since you've gambled now it's been about two and a half years uh, since I've last gambled on horses. Getting help, it took me a long time. I think the hardest part for me was actually saying to myself that I had a problem. Once that I did that, that was the biggest hurdle for me. And then I tried some self-help around looking you know, online around some things that I can do. I tried to block my uh, gambling accounts uh, for a period of time, but none of that really worked. And so then somehow the pressure just got so much for me to bear that one day I just picked up the phone and rang um, Gambler's Help. What was making that call like? It was very nerve-wracking. I'd been thinking about doing it for probably about a month. So it wasn't something that I did straight away. It was something that I had to mull through my mind. I tried self-help techniques I actually can remember the day I did it at work, I went to an office and rang someone and just speaking to someone on the phone, 
it wasn't the counsellor that I ended up speaking with. It must have been a receptionist. And she asked me a few questions and just asked me about my gambling. And immediately the sense of relief that I found just by talking to someone else and saying that I had a problem and I needed help, the moment I hung up the phone, I felt so much better. Yeah, that's good. And I think that's really helpful for people listening, that making that first call is so important. And once you do make it, um, you really feel like you know, the, you're getting the ball rolling. Look, absolutely. That was probably one of the biggest hurdles was actually putting my hand up and saying that I needed help. Uh, that was probably the first hurdle. And the second biggest hurdle was then probably be a month later after I started the treatment, having enough strength and courage then to tell my wife. Yeah, right. So take us through the treatment. So you've, you've rang, you know, it's an intake call, and then you've got an appointment with somebody. I was able to get in and see someone, I think, a couple of days after I made that first initial phone call, which was really good. After I made the call, it was really important for me to get started as fast as I could and not wait a couple of weeks to see someone. I wanted to get in and get started just in case I changed my mind. And I met with my counsellor and and we just talked through my history and my background. And and it was quite emotional for me doing that. But along the way, um, my counsellor was very supportive and then we discussed some treatment plan options. So how did it help talking to a counsellor, even about the personal things? I think it helped in terms of being able to just share my feelings and what was going on. Had you discussed this with anybody else ever before? No, no, I hadn't. So that's probably a massive thing as well. Look, it certainly was. I guess yeah. the, in the beginning, the best thing was just about being able to release my feelings and tell someone else that in itself lifted probably 50 to 60% uh, of the weight off my shoulders and I felt much, much better for doing that. Then when we actually started doing the treatment and we talked about how it could work, I actually understood the plan. I used um, exposure therapy. Exposure therapy. Tell us what all that's about. Exposure therapy is around being exposed to urges Uh, And it's really about managing those urges because the urges never really go away. I mean, I still think about gambling now. It's a Saturday today. So I still think about it. I still get friends ring me up, you know, and talk to me about horses because I think that I'm still betting and they know that I have loved betting. So the way that the urge management works is because it just started off looking at pictures, looking at form guides, and then it would move on after a couple of weeks and we change that to looking at uh, horse races, you know, it might be looking at the last 50 metres of a horse race yep. and seeing them come to the line where that's obviously the most exciting part of the race to see who wins. So when I was right in the middle of my betting, my heart rate would go through the roof, I'd have the sweats, I'd have the shakes, all sorts of physical reactions. Obviously, when your heart rate's high, you're not thinking straight. Well, my mind was all over the place, but then when my heart rate came down, I was then able to think rationally and think, why am I betting? Do I need to bet? Do I want to bet? Mm. And I was then able to make the connection, no, I don't want to do this. So you'd stop that. So that was the gambling exercise. And so when I first started off the exposure therapy, just looking at a form guide and just looking at a picture of a horse gave those same physical responses. So it was about over time being exposed to those and looking at the, you know, the form guide or the picture of the horse and just waiting until your urge to gamble subsided. 
that might take anywhere between 15 to 20 minutes of the urge to come down for 15 to 20 minutes a night, four or five times a week. Right, and it never involved actually gambling, did it? No, it never involved gambling. It was always exposing yourself to gambling stimulants, small in the beginning, and then just managing those urges. What was the hardest thing you faced while you were trying to get help or trying to change? The hardest thing for me was the way that my wife reacted, and it was more around our relationship and getting the understanding and support from my wife. The gambling therapy side of it, I found fairly, I wouldn't use the word easy, but I understood it and and I was committed to that. What made it hard was then coming home at night after I had told my wife she didn't understand around how could gambling be an addictive disease? Why couldn't you stop? How could you lie to me? So not only was I doing the gambling treatment, I also had a lot of family issues um, at the same time. That was very, very difficult. You know, and at one point my wife, you know, wasn't sure whether she wanted to stay with me. Thankfully she did. And in the end, her support was great. And the good thing is that she came to quite a number of the counselling sessions with me. And that was very, very important. And the other thing that also helped us navigate that difficult time was that we also then saw a relationship counsellor um, as well. So, Yeah, that's great that you had her and she she understood and it's an important part of it, isn't it? Without her and, and her support, she actually manages the money now. Uh, so, so that's one of the measures that we put in place. I don't have a problem with that, that it works fine for us. And, you know, she knows, and I've, I've said to her, I said, look, I'm a, I'm a gambler who's in reform. You know, if you see something that's not right, you need to ask, well, what's that, what's that transaction for? Or why did you take that money out? And if I give you an answer that doesn't make hundred percent sense, yeah. ask me three or four times again and just keep asking because, you know, not intentionally, there's a chance that I could be telling you a lie. Yeah, that's good. That's good so, advice too. So that certainly helped. Mate, at the end of each interview, we get um, a bit of a helpful hint that you might be able to pass on to our listeners. What's yours? Encouraging people to have the strength to put their hand up and say that they need help. That's the biggest thing. It's not something that I don't believe that you can do by yourself. And if you think that you have a problem, then there's a a high chance that you do have a problem. That would be my biggest tip. The other thing that would be finally is that even if you've been betting for a long time, I was betting for a long time, nearly 30 years, just because you've been betting for a long time, don't think that you can't change because you can change. And I'm a fine example of that. Yeah. Good on you, Ben. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, mate. Cheers. Thanks a lot. You're listening to Not A Dollar More, and in this episode, we're talking about ways to get help professionally. In our next interview, we have Sophia Alexandra, a therapeutic counsellor from Gambler's Help at Each, a social and community health service in Melbourne. Thanks for joining us, Sophia. Thank you for inviting me, Shane. No worries. I've heard a few people say, how can a counsellor help me stop pressing these buttons on this machine? Well, counselling can help you to identify what it is that you want to change. So we identify the risks of their behaviour in their life, whether it affects them in a financial, um, personal way, if it it affects their work life or their family life. 
together we work on how we can bring about some changes and what may be beneficial in making those changes. So, for example, if the main problem is financial, we look at how we can address the financial issues first. So they might be referral to a financial counsellor, for example. If it's family, we might try and invite the family in to have a discussion about what's happening. So there are a variety of ways that we can approach it, but we first need to talk to the person and see how it's affecting them and what they want to change about their gambling. I know a lot of people are petrified about seeing a counsellor. Mm-hmm. I know I was when I sort of was first looking for help. Mm-hmm. It was quite a scary thought to go and see somebody and lay all my cards out on the table. Mm-hmm. Do you find a lot of people that are very nervous or perhaps are counselling appointments because of just the fact of being so petrified? Yes, and you know it's not something that a lot of us have experience with in going to see a counsellor, unlike perhaps going to see your doctor. For a lot of people, it can be a little bit um, nerve-wracking, but we use the opportunity of, a, of an intake process, of that first phone call that you make, to let the person know what it is that we do, who we are, and what they can expect from our service, and also that we are non-judgmental. So we don't have any vested interest in changing the person or changing their behaviour for our own sake. It's about what they want to get out of us and to uh, reassure them that uh, you know all of their information, everything that they share is confidential and private and they can tell us as much or as little about themselves as they want. So some people are very anxious about delving into their personal history. Mm-hmm. How important is it that they need to delve that deep in order to fix their gambling behaviour? That's a really good question, actually, Shane, because a lot of people are fearful. They may have heard things about counselling or therapy that frightens them, that makes them think that they might have to go back into their childhood, for example, and that's not the case at all. We begin with, um, as I said, what they want to achieve. We get some goal setting going. We look at strategies. And there are some people who have come into counselling and have seen us for three sessions. They've put some strategies in place. They work with their families. They work with their own support system. And then they leave. So there's nothing more beyond that point and that's perfectly fine and that's exactly what they want to achieve and that's what they get. For other people, there may be layers of underlying kind of issues. There may be social isolation, there may be relationship issues, there may be family issues, there may be depression or mental illness. And for those people, we actually work in stages. We don't, you know, the person doesn't come in and we kind of open it all up and make it scary for them. We work with strategies first of how they can feel more in control and manage what is troubling them immediately. And then as we proceed, it's really up to the client uh, how much or how little they want to delve into other things, if at all. If people do have these layers that you talk about, is it possible to just fix their gambling problem first and then perhaps work on the layers later on? Again, that's really a great way of actually exploring it and looking at what may happen. And when you're distressed about your gambling, when you're distressed about a behaviour that preoccupies your mind and preoccupies your life most of your waking time, we find that the earlier you can get control over that, the more capacity you have within yourself to manage other things in your life. So we try to focus on that first and try to kind of isolate and say, well, how can we make that better for you? so that then you do have more mental capacity and um, physical capacity to be able to attend to other things if you need to. So that would be the first thing that we would address. Yeah, okay. Mm. How important is it to be ready for change before seeing a counsellor? I think it's critical to be ready. In my experience, very little progress can be made if you're not ready. So for those people who may have come in because they've been coerced by somebody else, uh, family members or a loved one, 
we use those first um, one or two sessions to actually just educate and tell them what counselling is about, to tell them the options, to um, talk to them about pacing themselves, that they we don't have to go at any particular pace that they're not comfortable with and we leave them with that information. We encourage them to talk about it with their families and we encourage them to bring another person into the counselling session. Now that could be a family member or a friend so that they can uh, kind of go home with information and think about what they want to achieve if anything at all. It's not uncommon that somebody will come in or call our intake service and have a conversation and even make an appointment with the counsellor and then we have a conversation before they come in And then they might say, well, I'll think about it. And so six months later or a year later, and in one case, three years later, the person remembers that conversation because you've given them something to think about and you haven't sort of coerced them or forced them into doing anything. And so the readiness is on the individual's side. It's not on the family or the service. Yeah, so making Mm. that first phone call to the intake service is it's quite a massive step. Absolutely. Really. It's huge. It's a huge step. And it might be the first time that somebody has asked for help. We're aware that that can be quite a stressful time. And also, a, you know, a lot of people say that it makes them feel like they can't do it themselves. And the truth is that they are doing it themselves. They're just aligning themselves with somebody who's familiar with the process. But that very first call can be a really scary thing for a lot of people. What's the first things you go over, just so that they can picture it in their head, what it's going to be like when they sit down with a counsellor? So there's a questionnaire at the beginning of our sessions that captures the gambling for, you know, the last two weeks and the last um, month and what's brought them to counselling. So what is it about the gambling that has increased or changed in that time that's that's been the impetus for them to actually come to counselling? And we explore that starting from the financial impact to family work impact to thinking about gambling sometimes too much. And that can be interfering in how they are engaging in work or with their social life. So it may not be financial, it may be the absences, it may be the lack of uh, social interaction, they're missing birthday parties, they're not coming home on time, that kind of thing. Yeah, Yeah, okay. Mm. What do you think stops people from seeking out counselling? I think there's a lot of stigma associated still, unfortunately, with seeking counselling, that there's something wrong with you. There's this perception that um, somehow you're weak or you can't do it yourself, and I don't know where that comes from, but it's generational as well as cultural. Some of the things that can get in the way is sometimes people think that there may be a cost involved and I'm surprised with the number of people that come in and will say, so is there a fee, even though we've said it's a free service Mm. in so many ways. The distance might be another thing. The access to the services, it might be that they work and there's, um, you know, they think that there's no after-hours services or sometimes there aren't in their area. How do they explain the time away if they need to come in during the day and they need to um, take time off work and that's a common one. And then I guess the fear of, you know, what may happen if they do come into counselling? Well, if they've never been to counselling, what can they expect? Will somebody tell them what to do? Will somebody um, ask them to stop gambling and they don't want to stop gambling? So there's a whole lot of factors. In the session, I've heard the partners say, you couldn't even do that yourself. You know, you had to come in and get somebody to help you. And Mm. I think, gosh, you know, if you had that kind of thinking from a partner, that's definitely going to stop you from seeking support. So what would you say to somebody that's thinking about seeking out, you know, seeing Mm. a counsellor? I would say just come and have a chat or, um, you know, call and have a chat. You don't even have to give your name. You can talk about what's going on for you. You can just ask how we work. What can they expect from counselling? Have a talk and there's no obligation. There's no pressure 
for you to come in, you know, if you have a preference for a male or a female, an older or a younger person, we try to accommodate people wherever we can. But just, you know, call and ask for information. There's absolutely no pressure for people mm. to take it beyond that. So hypothetically, if I went to see a counsellor and I kind of didn't really feel like we were getting along or he or she didn't really understand, yes. is it a big deal to change counsellors? N- not a big deal at all. It's, it's not a problem at all. And in fact, that's one of the first things that we say in the first session. We give that person the permission to either get back to intake if they don't want to tell us directly that they don't feel that they were a good match or to call the 1-800 number and say, could you refer me to a different service? So there's no issue whatsoever. What would be one helpful hint you could give to somebody who's thinking about starting out with their gambling recovery mm-hmm. journey, I suppose you could say? Okay. So awareness is the first thing. Awareness of your behaviour, awareness of the spending, awareness of the impacts on your life or somebody else's life, and then talk about it. Just talk about it with the person that you feel the most comfortable with. Think about making an appointment or contacting a service and just have a chat about I think or I might or I know somebody that may and see what comes out of that conversation. So the practical step would be to just not be afraid to start to talk about it or to think about it. If we're talking about a specific person who may be overspending or who might be you know, moving from a low to a medium to a high risk, then taking note of your expenditure, taking note of the things you used to do, and it's sometimes useful to consider this time last year, this time five years ago, how is my life different now than what it was before? So it's almost like taking a step back mm. and saying, okay, I've, um, I've had to draw $500 out of my credit card mm. this, this week. Mm. You know, I've had to um, cancel that birthday that I had to go to, or yes. I had to lie, yes. or just sort of taking that step back and having a look at a, a few of the dramas that are going on in your life. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Thanks for all that fantastic information. I think that's going to be really helpful for a lot of people. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Shane. We now have Liz from EACH, a community health centre service in Melbourne, to talk about the service of financial counselling. What is it? How can this service help you? Liz, thanks for coming in for a chat. Thank you. So a person who is gambling comes to you, they lay all their debts out on the table, which could be very embarrassing and daunting. What typically happens at an appointment? Our first appointment can be a lot like that. We have an important role to build that rapport with a person when they come in to make sure they do feel comfortable sharing that information. We can only do our work or our side of the work if a client can give us all their information, but we do understand that that's going to be you know, a big ask. And so we might find at our first appointment, it's a really exhausting appointment for the client, but they may leave feeling a lot lighter because they have finally told someone possibly for the first time that they've actually got these debts. So we take down a lot of information at the first appointment and that gives us our foundations, our building blocks to start working with that person on what direction they want to head in. We're beside the client through the whole process. We're not up ahead. We're not behind. We walk or stay beside the client to ensure that um, the client's very aware of what we're doing in our role. It's not about us just fixing their situation. It's about working with them towards the goal that we're setting together. Yeah, great. What type of um, debt are most people getting themselves into? Look, it, it does vary from people coming in at a later stage in their gambling that they have actually 
resorted to refinancing property or taking out personal loans to cover things like credit card debt that they've accumulated or payday loans that they wanted to pay out. So we may find that some people may have a number of small loans to people that have significant credit card debt or personal loan debt. Is financial counselling only useful for people that have so like large amounts of debt or struggling to pay bills or is it also useful for people who don't have these issues but are trying to change their gambling behaviour? Financial counselling across the board is very beneficial for anyone who's experiencing financial stress. It may be that some people feel comfortable to contact creditors themselves. A lot of people feel like they need just a starting point in order to know what their rights are as consumers. And so understanding a little bit about what they can ask for when they contact a creditor. They can speak to someone, a creditor's uh, hardship department, so they can contact a bank and, and they can know what they can and can't ask for and what they should expect in response from a bank. Really, a hardship um, option is about trying to get someone back on track. So it's hopefully a short-term option, but a lot of people don't realise those options are available. So once they do know that, they can then start to build some sort of pathway away from the debt that they've got. A lot of gamblers relapse, which I'm sure you probably see. Is the service still available for people that have seeked your help? relapsed and then kind of need help again? Absolutely. We have a lot of people that will come to the service and we'll do a lot of work together and they're feeling well supported or they're feeling like their recovery is uh, effective. There's no reason for them not to come back in if they feel like they need further support. We do often work in conjunction with other services. We work alongside um, a therapeutic counselling service. So If we find that someone is experiencing some pretty high stress or feeling overwhelmed or the client themselves has has talked about their own mental illness, we can try and find further support for them and then work in conjunction with the therapeutic counselling service to try and offer a more holistic service to that client and work towards some recovery goals that that client may generate for themselves and then that way the client's feeling a lot more supported and understood hopefully. Yeah great. From a financial counselling perspective what's the one key thing people can do to help manage their gambling harm? There's a lot of talk around harm minimisation and that has to be client driven as well. Once we have that conversation we can ask them what they think will work best for them whether it be that they have someone else manage their money or that they have a bank account that they have to go in and withdraw money during business hours so that they're not actually taking money out of an ATM after hours or able to access funds when they're feeling a strong urge to gamble. But things like uh, asset protection is also another conversation that we'll have often with a person around the fact that they are feeling that they can't actually control their expenditure. So if they're feeling that they want someone else to sign documents on their behalf, example, like withdrawal of money. I'm assuming some people before seeing you have never really added up their debt. All the things that that we think of as main budget things, once you start looking into it, we forget about things like how much money do we spend at Christmas time on our family? How much money do we spend on birthdays? Do the kids have lunch orders? Like all that sort of stuff. People say, oh, I didn't, I didn't realise that I actually spent that much. We have a very comprehensive budget, so it, it talks about things like, you know, medication, dog food, do you have any vet bills, you know, 
registration of your vehicle. And for a lot of people, knowing that their budget is in deficit can be upsetting for them, but it also can be reassuring to understand that they are actually in financial hardship. That is why they're feeling the way that they're feeling, because there isn't enough money. And whether or not that is a prompt to gamble is a whole other conversation. But for a person to understand their own behaviours is paramount to deciding which direction they're going to go in and what recovery really looks like for them. Yeah, that's really good. Thanks a lot for joining us, Liz. Thank you. Look out for a link on financial counselling on our website. Have a great day. You too. Thanks. You've been listening to Not A Dollar More. To find out more about the professional help available near you, contact Gambler's Help on 1800 858 858. You can also check out our website for more information about harmful gambling and all the different types of help available at notadollarmore.org.au. This podcast has been produced by Banyul Community Health. My name is Shane Rogers. Don't forget to check out our next episode, Getting More Help, where we talk to people about other, more informal ways of making changes to your gambling behaviour. Bye for now.